0: We're too bossy. Too ambitious. Too opinionated. So that's why we made a podcast. Welcome to Two Lips, One Mic, A podcast about smashing stereotypes and disappointing our traditional grandparents.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode. So we're going to be talking about something that we haven't touched on yet quickly, um, but will generate a lot of debate, I'm sure, which is the topic of race and the topic of being a model minority and maybe even a bit of a sprinkle of being whitewashed, which I think you'll probably have something to say about. Um, But before we get to that, what's been going on with you this week?
0: Yeah, listen, there's not a whole lot that's going on. We're (laughs) still in a perpetual state of lockdown here in Melbourne. Um, So I've mostly been uh, consuming a lot of podcasts, um, as I ordinarily do. Um, And there's a new podcast that I want to recommend and that we've both been listening to. Um, it's a podcast called Apologetically, or Unapologetically rather, <laughs> Brown. Uh, and it's a podcast hosted by um, two South Asian women, um, both of Indian origin, uh, and their experiences of being brown um, in the world that we live in.
1: And as someone who is not brown, um, I've actually learned so much from that podcast. I think it's one of the best um, educational podcasts out there. And it's definitely generated a lot of debate and chatter, and I think a lot of self-critique amongst both of us about the way that we approach race and um, think about race, I guess, because I don't know, it's something that we haven't really talked much about, despite the fact that we very much don't look white.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I find it to be really interesting and informative, and like you said, uh, it has invited a lot of self-introspection. Uh, And I think of late, we've been sort of um, having a lot of debates between ourselves and with um, other people in our lives about sort of the things that we agree with, the things that we don't agree with. Uh, And yeah, using it as a springboard, I guess, to kind of um, have those broader conversations around race, culture, ethnicity and the like.
1: I'm so glad they're finally releasing um, a podcast that touches on these issues and is quite confrontational and unapologetic about the way that um, the um, podcast hosts are about um, how we as minorities view race. And I think um, it's something that we will talk about a bit later on um, in the context of another um, book and article that we've been um, consuming over the last few weeks. But I think it raises interesting questions too, especially when you're raised as Australian. Mm. um, Because both of us are born in Australia. And so I feel like um, growing up, we've always had that tension between being um australian or being our cultural selves and the thing about both of our parents is also that they've been very um they've sort of had to assimilate in order to survive Mm. which raises some additional interesting questions Mm. um but before we turn to that i think we want to say as well that um we're finally recording outside of squad cast (laughs) um we're actually able to sit in the park because of the laxing of restrictions um that has happened over the last week I feel like this pandemic is a constant roller coaster though because I want to get excited about what's to come like November 2 can't come soon enough they're hopefully going to be opening up hospitality and retail but then we keep having these fluctuations of um the clusters forming and I just feel my heart sinking every time this happens
0: yeah I feel that real sort of internal conflict because you don't want to become completely hopeless because then there's nothing to look forward to but equally you don't want to be too hopeful and then have your expectations dashed so it's yeah it's something that we're I guess both like navigating and everyone else in Melbourne is navigating um but you know what small victories. We're in a park, we're together and hopefully the sound quality of this podcast is a lot better as a result.
1: (laughs) And how are you going life in lockdown?
0: Yeah I've actually had a couple of interesting conversations this week both with you and um, other close friends. I think I've reached the point where I'm feeling really really numb (laughs) about everything that's going on Um, I was reading this like interesting article that was talking about the fact that uh, Victorians and in particular Melburnians have sort of reached what's called surge capacity uh, Mm. in the sense that a lot of us have sort of exerted so much time, energy and anxiety over lockdown that we actually have reached a point where we don't have a lot more to give. And so our mind and body's way of responding to that is actually just to stop feeling everything. And that's not sustainable, obviously. But I think for the time being, it is sort of helping me manage this perpetual sort of lockdown that we find ourselves in. I completely get that, though. And I think um, with
1: that feeling of numbness, I wonder how many other Victorians who are listening might feel the same because I think it's a self-preservation or a protective mechanism to deal with what I said, which is this constant roller coaster. Like, every time I have... My hope's up for something that's going to happen, like some restrictions going to be lifted. Something happens like a Chadston cluster Mm. or now we're dealing with like a North Melbourne cluster. Mm. And I just feel like I can't get excited, but I have to hold on to hope because Mm. it's like
0: if you don't have hope, what do
1: you have really?
0: Exactly right. Um, And you know what? Like if we look at where we were even a month ago, um, things have actually improved. Um, Like, you know, once upon a time we were grateful to have cases below the 700 mark and then the 100 mark. And then today we had one case. Oh, did we? Yeah. One case only. Even with the clusters and all that stuff. Well, I think there's a bit of a lag between sort of the positive case and then sort of the subsequent um, contacts that come out of it. So I'm not saying we're going to sustain this momentum. Um, but I think we do just need to sort of celebrate those little victories because, like you said, that's what gives us hope to keep like moving forward and striving.
1: I guess the other thing that I'm really done with is how divisive this lockdown has created. So I don't know if you saw in the news this week, but Beck Judd, who lives in like a $7 million Brighton mansion, mm-hmm. is a part of this Free Melbourne campaign um and so they're selling like these 40 t-shirts that purport to donate to beyond blue because they really care about our mental health and as a few people pointed out on twitter didn't see beck judd caring that much when they were locking up the people in the housing commission class. <laughs> to quote her she actually said something like um short-term pain for long-term gain and now wow. she's complaining about the fact that she can't Leave her seven million dollar mansion, which I had a very, very extensive stalk on Daily Mail. It's a massive mansion. It's huge. Like that is your entire apartment block, maybe even double your your block. It's it's got a pool. It's got a tennis court. Like literally has all the amenities you could need. So don't fucking try to complain about it when you're talking about people being locked down in like housing commission flat um buildings. Which mm. I don't know if you've ever been in one of those rooms. They are small very small great views but small yeah
0: it's difficult isn't it because obviously every single one of us is experiencing this lockdown in different ways Um, and i think we all do need sort of time and space to give ourselves permission to kind of you know experience the grief that we're feeling But equally, we need to have perspective. Like, there are people that are doing it a lot worse off. um, And we need to kind of be grateful for what we do have. So, yeah, I literally just have to tune out people like her because if I focus too much on that, um, I'll just go into a rage spiral and then, you know, be that angry person on Twitter like every other person on Twitter. No, I, I
1: think that's a really
0: sensible way of dealing with
1: this because otherwise you would just go insane. Um, But I just think it's created this division in our state, which I hate to see because, you know, in the beginning in April, we were all in this together and now Mm. um, I think it hasn't been assisted by a lot of um, fuck-ups that have been revealed in terms of the handling of it and various things like that, which is inevitable in a project this big. Mm. Like if you think about the monumental tasks that our um, politicians and our public servants were dealt with, a massive pandemic response is unprecedented and so i'm not surprised that there's been a series of mishaps it's just really really sad because it's led to the deaths of like hundreds of people Mm. and um the decimation of businesses Mm. and stuff like that but again it's it's the virus like
0: and not taking away (laughs) from that but i think i told you that a couple of weeks ago i saw someone tweet about the fact that when we've reached our peak of, you know, 700-and-something-odd cases, on that same day, the UK had recorded the same number of cases. And here we are today having one recorded case, and the UK is recording upwards of 15,000 cases a day. I know, it's
1: and it's that perspective that we need, but I think because we're not seeing people drop dead around us, it's really difficult to actually get that perspective. And so um, I think that's why for Victorians it's very difficult to understand um, that this needs to be done. And, and tomorrow, no wait, on Sunday, um, we may there may be some good news for us. But the other thing is that every other state in Australia is back to normal.
0: I think that's a huge issue because usually our point of reference is not other countries, it's other states, because a lot of us have family and friends in other states. And to know that they are, by and large, actually going back to what life was like and have been back to what life was like for a long time now, maybe with the exception of New South Wales to some extent, uh, it does definitely rub it in. Um, and I have had sort of friends interstate, well-intentioned friends, mind you, um, who will say things like, oh, you must be so happy. Things are getting better. Um, and, um, I know
1: they're trying to be helpful, but it's really hard. Yeah.
0: And it's like, listen, like, sure, like, you know, we're able to sit in a park together now. Um, but by and large, yeah, like you said, cafes and restaurants still aren't open for dining. dine-in. Um, gyms have been o- like closed, sorry, since June. March or they it? opened. The oh, that's right, they opened for that brief four to six week period before closing again. Um, yeah, so life is not what it was like or anything close to it. Um, so yeah, I agree that does make it a lot harder as well. Sort of seeing the other states and territories going back to what life was like and us still being in lockdown.
1: Alright, let's turn to the topic of this week's podcast, which is the topic of race. The topic of model minorities, of being race traders, of being whitewashed. So I think both of us have had some really interesting conversations as a result of both listening to um, Unapologetically Brown, but also um, a few other things that we've been consuming as a part of our book club. So um, we're currently reading Minor Feelings, which is a sort of autobiographical Mm. book, but she weaves in a lot of history into this book as well, Mm. which I found really, really interesting. Um, And on top of that, we were also um, looking at another article that um, had been published a few years ago in the Guardian um, called Being a Good, Quiet, and Assimilated Mortal Minority is Making Me Angry. What were your sort of thoughts about reading both of those things at the same time? Like, what kind of stood out to you?
0: Mm. Yeah, I have had a lot of feelings and thoughts sort of consuming both the book and the article. Um, and sometimes those feelings and thoughts have been in direct contradiction with each other. Uh, so, with the book, Minor Feelings, um, and the reason why it's called Minor Feelings is essentially to explain that gaslighting experience yes. that happens amongst a lot of minorities, um, and in particular model minorities, um, where white people in particular will often feed model minorities this message of, oh, you can work hard, and if you work hard, you will get a good job, and you will earn a good income, um, and you have you know, a good family. And making essentially model minorities think that we live in a meritocracy and that if they simply work hard enough, they will reap the rewards of their hard work. Whereas that doesn't actually align with a lot of the lived experiences of those model minorities. So in Minor Feelings, um, the author talks about the fact that even though she's grown up having white people constantly tell her that life is really good for people like her, specifically Asian-Americans, that is actually not her lived experience of what it's like to be Asian-American. That even though I think she makes mention of the fact that Indian Americans are the highest income earners in the United States of uh, all the minorities, that you still don't actually see a whole lot of representation of Indian Americans when it comes to sort of big platforms like politics or law or corporations, that there's sort of what's called this... I think there's an actual term for it, but essentially the equivalent of like a glass ceiling. The bamboo ceiling. The bamboo ceiling, that's right, where essentially... If you're a model minority, you can work to sort of this level of like middle management, but then once you hit that level, it's actually really hard for you to get to the higher echelons and become, you know, the top manager or the top CEO.
1: So I think it might be useful um, for our listeners to sort of get her definition. So the author, Kathy Park Hong, writes that minor feelings, the racialized range of emotions that are negative, dysphoric, and therefore um, built from sediments of everyday racial experience, an irritant of having one's perceptions of reality constantly questioned or dismissed, mm. and it does go to that thing you were saying about being gaslit. Because how many times have you been told that you, as a brown person, have it much better than other people? And um, and I've had it too. Because like as an Asian, I think she also um, Hong also says that Asians are being told that we're next in line to be white. And I feel like we're seeing so much of this now, especially in the Vietnamese community during these Trump things. Mm. And I think um, I've raised this with you over the last few months, but there seems to be this um, very strong pro-Trump, anti-Black Lives Matter um, Vietnamese support in the United States for the Trump administration.
0: I found this fascinating when you told me about it.
1: Well, because as an outsider, I guess it makes zero sense to me because it's like, um, Trump does not stand for anything that would support us as a minority. Like, you'd think um, there's nothing there for them, but I think he does stand for those um, principles of model minority, which is if you work hard and are compliant and you don't get uppity and do protests and stuff like that, you'll get your fortunes as well. And it's very much the American pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality. And I think for a lot of, um, so it's mostly my parents' generation who are so indoctrinated into this Trumpism. And I actually cannot even have these conversations with my parents anymore because we're so polarised. And I've actually um, found that their discussions about American politics has become a lot more vitriolic, which I think, again, is just the Trumpism um, seeping into our day-to-day lives, which is a separate topic but, and very alarming. But after having dealt with my parents with that, I've looked a bit more deeply into the Vietnamese community there. I joined um, this, you know... Asian-Americans group against Republicans and seen that... Against Republicans or for Republicans? Against Republicans. The the support group that I was telling you about where all the kids... Oh, right. And there's all these kids who are having these same conversations with their Vietnamese parents. Some of them getting kicked out of their homes because they don't believe in voting for Trump. It's actually really, really destructive. Um, But having read a bit more about Sort of, and trying to understand the perspectives, I think it does touch on these things of the model minority, which is what mm. we've been raised um, all our lives to be.
0: It's almost like the aftertaste of colonialism, right? Um, you'd have colonisers go into these countries and sort of adopt this divide and conquer strategy where they would pick a side, typically the minority within that country, and then create division between the minority and the majority population and use it to kind of rule over everyone it sort of strikes me as that because i remember even in this book um the author makes reference to the la riots in Mm. 1992 and she makes these really interesting observations about how different minorities and in her experience because she's a korean american how the korean community in la responded to that so she makes note of the fact that, yes, there were definitely Korean-Americans that sort of had the backs of African-Americans, but there was also a really sizable Korean-American population that either stood by or actively worked against African-Americans during those rights because they wanted to so desperately believe in this model minority myth, and they saw African-Americans as essentially doing away with the hard work that, you know, like basically sit down and shut up and do the work and we'll actually get somewhere. And they were actually turning on African-Americans instead of their common oppressor, which were the white Americans. You know, I can
1: actually draw some great parallels between that 1992 example and exactly what's happened in Black Lives Matters because um, when I was reading through some of these news articles about um, Vietnamese-Americans and the Black Lives Matters movement, a lot of them are shop owners and they had been broken into as a, a, identical to the K-Town example you pointed out there um, and Hong talks about quite extensively. And instead of um, the Vietnamese community sort of, I guess, thinking about it a bit more of an abstract way and thinking, hmm, are we united by a common oppressor? Are we united by a common, um, you know, socioeconomic or in the Black Lives Matters movement case, um, the issues with racialized policing instead of thinking about that they're thinking about um you know their their livelihood so mm. more immediate things I guess and things that directly relate to them which I can understand as well I mean my parents were business owners and you know we've been broken into lots and lots of times and it's, it's a really violating feeling to have your business that you worked up really hard for be burnt down or whatever um And so, I guess in that space, there's no time to think about the abstract intellectualism, which we've talked about, you know. For some people, they're just looking to survive. And so, that's why they defer to thinking about the wider abstract race relations that they think doesn't affect them, or at least doesn't affect them in the immediate, like, future, um, that they will think about
0: what they need to survive. I understand that to a point. um, But to be frank... I would have thought that, yes, I appreciate that your priority might be sort of your immediate needs, which are your ability to sustain a livelihood, which depend in large part on you being able to operate your business. But I would have thought that, you know, establishing solidarity with the other oppressed minority and working together towards this common enemy would actually sustain their business and their livelihood in the long run. And I know it's really hard to have that perspective, especially like during the LA riots where, like you said, the you know people were having their businesses burnt to the ground, broken in, and I'm sure I can't even begin to imagine what an incredibly violating and jarring experience that must have been. But at the same time, like the author says, there were people that actually said, you know what, if we align ourselves with the African-American community here that's been so maligned for so long, then we can actually essentially overthrow the system and in doing so actually work to establish a meritocracy where we are more likely to succeed. And that's exactly what Hong was saying throughout
1: the book, which was, um, you know, if they united on that level rather than... Because I feel like sometimes there's so much more division amongst the minorities than us against the colonisers um which happens i think it's it's lateral violence it happens um in indigenous aboriginal communities like that's where we talk about it um in the australian context but i don't think there's enough conversation about it happening amongst um other racial groups outside of that like for instance it happens amongst there's just this unofficial sort of like race hierarchy almost and we've seen it with um in our sort of wider circles when um interracial marriage for instance and you know um Hindus not being able to get with Muslims and um, Chinese not being able to get with Indian and mm. and stuff like that and and that's where it's come out and I don't think people have said it as overtly because it's politically like incorrect but nonetheless it still exists and so there's some sort of weird hierarchy that we're playing against each other mm. rather than um, just the fact that we're actually all equal, like we're all getting oppressed. Mm. The, it's different degrees but the, the threshold is oppression by the colonisers and so if we were to bind together yeah exactly what, what Hong has said is that we could actually overthrow the notion of American meritocracy anyway mm. and she talks about minor feelings occur when American optimism is forced on you with which contradicts your own racialized identity so that sort of links into what we were saying about before which is like but you should be grateful to be working three jobs to make a living because you're here in America like you know there's it's the land of opportunity and it's this optimism she says that sets up false expectations that then increase these feelings of dysmorphia mm. so you can't you lose your orientation essentially um she talks about this meritocracy and how we draw so much on that and um if you're not compliant like we need to be good and we need to be palatable to white people and so if we're not complying to that if we complain or if we get uppity then we're immediately ostracized and probably to a greater degree by white people than um if it was a white person raising the same issue and so I wanted to talk about this a bit more sort of in a personal context because I've known about the concept of um, of the model minority for a few years now, but I think it's a lot of the a- academia has been focused in America. Like I think Australia is just a bit behind on that. And so I've sort of thought about how my upbringing itself is very much on the basis of acting exactly like a model minority and on the notion of assimilation, which is another thing that very much is um, sort of, facilitated or encouraged by um, proponents of the model minority so um, in my life anyway so my parents came here after the war and I think there's something different about when you come directly from a position of trauma and you are just surviving and I think that's why they have a very different mindset to say our generation where we were born here so I feel like we almost have more of an entitlement to have a say. Whereas my mum's always like, you need to think of Australia as your adopted country, you know, like you need to just work really hard um, and don't, you know, don't go to protests and stuff like that. Um, And I was like, no, like that's my democratic right. And I'm born here. I'm an Australian citizen. Like I have every much the right to say whatever I want to. Mm. Um, But yeah, it was just interesting that that came up with my parents and that I guess I just want to sort of set out the understanding of why like my upbringing has very much been premised on the fact that you have to work hard. You have to be compliant. You need to um, do good for the Vietnamese here because you know, you're representing um, like us in this country. And I think to an extent you've talked about how you feel this sense of shame. And I do exactly when it's um, like, I feel a lot of shame when I think of like the Vietnamese people who came here after the war and really fucked things up. Um, drug-wise, and also we were involved in the first political assassination of this country. Like, that is actually really embarrassing because I do feel like this country's given us so much, and I just straddle these really complex feelings Mm. about, like, gratitude, but also, like, feeling like I have every right to say what I want to say and do what I want to do and to be an equal participant of this country as an Australian,
0: given I am an Australian. I feel like Hong also tries to straddle those lines in her book because she does talk about that sort of pressure to just be grateful for the fact that she's been accepted into this Western country. But is she a migrant or was she born there? My recollection is that she came there as a young child. Mm. Um, But notwithstanding that, whether that's the case or not, I think what she does really effectively Is sort of dismantle this notion that we should just be grateful for being here. And the way she does it is by sort of situating migration within its broader social context. So, in the context of like Korean Americans and how they came to be in America, that was primarily through the Korean War, which the Americans in large part perpetrated.
1: As with the Vietnam War.
0: Correct. And so when you actually look at the reason why these different migration patterns have taken place and why, yeah, for example, the Koreans migrated to Western countries, why the Vietnamese did it, in large part, it was because of these Western countries. If like we didn't have, you know, in those two contexts, the Americans and the Soviets going at each other and essentially using those countries, As playthings to like exploit their own political ideologies then there'd be a really good chance that you know your parents um, or you would still be there and be living a very different quality of life you wouldn't have had to go overseas to a Western country so I almost feel like again it's like a gaslighting experience like you're being told on the one hand be grateful that we've accepted you into Australia but also in large part Australia is the reason why you had to escape your country to be here
1: That's a really good point. And I think, yeah, it is, it's not just the Korean and Vietnamese experience, but reflected across, we've got now um, a lot of Afghani people Mm. who have exactly the same experience as well.
0: Or just a lot of sort of post-colonial migration patterns, like the same thing happened post-independence in India. Mm. You had this huge wave of migration from India into the United Kingdom, and it's like, Hold on, United Kingdom, you can't expect Indians to sort of be the model minority when you're the reason why they're fleeing their home country in the first place.
1: And so, what's your sort of personal experience with this model minority myth?
0: So, we've spoken about this a little bit. Um, To be honest with you, I don't really think I've had the model minority experience growing up. Um, My parents definitely sort of imbued in me this sense of, you know working hard and that if you worked hard you would get somewhere and you know you could use that to sort of create a you know good life for yourself but I don't know if that was really grounded in experiences around my culture or my ethnicity or my race
1: well I'd be curious to hear their perspective on that because very implicitly it may be because of their experience of migrating and being like um you know similar to my parents like coming like because Australia is a great country there's no Mm. doubt about that and I sort of shudder to think of what my life could be like and I you know I've got cousins who are in Vietnam and stuff and it's an economic struggle I would not have had the opportunities I have here um had I grew up there grown up there so you know I'd be curious as to what a little extent because the other thing about having discussed race quite recently is that I think both you and I have been brought up very differently to other more sort of deeply entrenched cultural, traditional parents. Mm. So, for instance, my parents are very much, like whilst we're Vietnamese and we still speak Vietnamese at home, um, I think there's a lot about our culture that they're critical about and that they don't fully subscribe to it mindlessly. And it's for them, um, and I've talked about them with this, is that the freedom of moving to Australia and starting over and being in a Western democracy has meant that they're able to choose the aspects of our culture that they want to accept and then get rid of all the other bits and pieces that they don't want to accept. And that's not perfect. I mean, there's bits and pieces. Like, um, even yesterday, my mum was like, why don't you have tissues at home? And I was like, just use the toilet paper to wipe your nose. And then she was like, People will laugh at you if they know that you use, like, toilet paper to wipe your nose, blah, blah, blah. As in, like, the whole, like, what people think about you sort of...
0: Is that tied to being Vietnamese, though? I think she was trying to say that. Like, she was like, you know, huh. people will
1: laugh... Like, you know, just the notion of, like, the, the people around you would, you know, make fun of you or whatever. Um, It's a a small example. I haven't had very big ones recently, but um, something like that. And I was just like, who cares what people think about you? Whereas Mm. uh, in other Vietnamese families, people's perceptions
0: of you is very important. Mm. And I don't know if it's like that in Indian communities as well. Uh, Absolutely. Although I should preface that by saying that my experience is very different from the experience of a lot of Indians living in Australia in the sense that i didn't really grow up as part of the community Uh, my parents did not have any indian friends when i was growing up the only indian friends they had were anglo-indian friends um, which is its own separate minefield that we will explore maybe in another episode Uh, so i didn't grow up as part of that community you know i didn't go to community events or religious events the only things we really marked were sort of those big holidays but even then, we did it on a relatively small scale and simply amongst our own family, but like our immediate sounds, family. But that
1: sounds very similar to my upbringing as well, because like every now and then we'll go to temple, but we're mm. not devout mm. or whatever the Buddhist <laughs> equivalent is. Um, and we speak Vietnamese by default, really. Um, it was interesting. I was having this conversation with one of our friends, and um, and recently saw a really good article being written about it, which is Vietnamese is kind of one of those jungle. Um, I think Ali Wong calls it like the jungle um, jungle Asian I
0: haven't heard that before
1: It's not like a refined Asian um, race like for instance the Japanese or Korean which you associate with being very prim and proper and palatable almost but Vietnamese I think has been seen as uh, being a bit trashy or a bit bogan and so um, as a result it's not taught um, in Australian schools very often and Mm. um, it's not a very big language as opposed to say Japanese Japanese Mm -hmm. is a huge language um, that has been largely you know a lot of white people love the language and so it's taught in a lot of countries Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of schools sorry Um, but aside from that I I think the language is probably the only like part and obviously physical appearance that would demonstrate that like we're a Vietnamese family Um, other than that you know we've grown up in a very white suburb and my parents deliberately made that choice because they Mm. wanted to have the freedom again and I think it was interesting talking to Nick the other day about the notion of culture and being born into it and I don't think culture is that deterministic as a lot of people have indicated I think culture can be what you choose out of it because there's heaps of parts of the patriarchal side of being Vietnamese that I don't want to perpetuate Mm. as a part of my culture and I think it's liberating and you know you may say that that's deluded or whatever but I think it's my right to choose what I identify with and what aspects of that cultural identification I choose
0: it's really tricky having these conversations and not being accused of being some self-hating minority I know and that's (laughs) and that's the other thing that's the flip side
1: of it like my parents have said that their parents, uh, their friends who are more conservative Vietnamese, um, have said that they're very whitewashed and very sort of like race traitors.
0: I've had that accusation, like accusation, sorry, leveled at me as well. Um, and I've often been at pains to explain that, listen, just because I don't identify strongly or much at all really with where my parents come from doesn't mean that I hate that culture. Um, to be honest, I had other priorities and my parents had other priorities growing up. We didn't sort of sit around the dining table and have these sorts of intellectual discussions around culture, ethnicity or race. Not taking away from people that do, I think they're important discussions to have. But I've mentioned previously in this podcast that, you know, I grew up really poor and my parents were working multiple jobs trying to make sure that they could pay the rent and have food on the table. And so my experience or my identity is much more shaped by class than it is by culture ethnicity or race Um, and and to a lesser extent also gender because I've had specific experiences around that and again that's not to take away from people who have different experiences um, for whom that does shape a large part of the identity but sometimes I do find the discussion on this issue to be a bit single-minded like And we've had this discussion amongst ourselves that just because someone doesn't identify strongly from, you know, what their cultural, ethnic or racial origin is, does not necessarily mean that they are self-hating. Now, having said that, I also accept and I've also observed uh, that there are people who do fall into that category. Like people who often will grow up as part of their community and then make an active sort of decision to hate on that community. And I think that's something that we do need to work to undo. But that's not my experience and I don't think that's your experience either
1: no I don't think it is but I think it's a really fine line that you tread between and I am constantly thinking about it as well because I think they're having spoken to my parents about it there are some times when um, they really hate on their own culture so it's a foul it's a falsehood to think that whatever you're born into you're going to love and you're going to defend to the up 10th degree because there's so many aspects of our culture that it's interpreted differently depending Mm. on which Vietnamese or Indian person you're talking Mm. to like you know if you ask like what's Indian culture to one person it will be vastly different to another person Mm. Um, so I think it's unfair to criticize people for being um, race Haiti just because they don't subscribe to whatever you think is the traditional Mm. notions of being traditionally Indian or traditionally Vietnamese. Mm. It's a self-identifier. So, like, as long as the person isn't actively setting out to be like, I hate being Indian.
0: Mm.
1: I hate Indians and I hate everything about them. As long as they're not setting out like that, Mm. then what's the issue?
0: And just reinforcing that point, um, that Guardian article that we referenced earlier, there's an excerpt in it that goes exactly to this. And she says... Um, here's the problem. This mantra of trotting out a one-size-fits-all cultural traits approach not only ignores the historical linguistic and ethnic diversity that is Asia but perpetuates a narrow essentialism that merely reinforces stereotypes. So this idea that there is like you said this singular Vietnamese identity or this singular Indian identity It's just, one, not accurate, and two, really unhelpful.
1: I think that's what my parents were getting at when... Because I told them about um, uh, the Unapologetically Brown podcast and just wanted to get sort of their views about that thing. And firstly, they, I think, are quite like you. They were like, this is a problem. Like, pronouncing your name right is a problem. And I I was explaining to them, like, yeah, it it is. For some people, I think it is a problem, yeah. But I think my parents are really too far the other side because they've had... experience of being survivors Mm. like like you said they haven't had the privilege the luxury or the space Mm. to properly consider um the you know all the things that we've talked about today like all the oppression and colonialism and Mm -hmm. let's bear in mind that let's check our privilege here we're both tertiary educated um my parents barely finished year 12 because of the war and so there is an educational gap as well and then the survival aspect Mm. which is we don't have time to think about these things. We got to put food on the table at whatever cost. And there was probably heaps of microaggressions and heaps of racism they faced. But rather than dwell on it, they had to think about the, the, the point of what they were doing, which was just to survive. And so I think that generation's experience is going to be very different to ours. So that's my very long caveat <laughs> of saying um, they just thought, yeah, they we're very dismissive of um, this concern and we're also very much like, you can't exist in Australian society without to some point assimilating in Australian society mm. and without some point adopting bits and pieces of the Australian culture. For instance, I've talked about the importance of language and this isn't to dismiss um, people who, um, who find it very hard to learn English, but I've worked in um, my Vietnamese community for the last two years and I've seen firsthand the struggle that people have in terms of finding employment, in terms of um, just navigating the court system, intervention orders, speaking to medical professionals when they're getting beaten. Those things are very difficult when you cannot speak English and it's disempowering. Like I see English um, learning, especially if you're in this country, not as a source of oppression but as a means or a tool for them to be empowered so that they have their voice literally heard. And so I don't see that as being whitewashed. I see it as a tool. It's a constructive tool that people do need, unfortunately, to exist in this society. Well,
0: not being able to speak English, like you said, it's a real sort of practical constraint on your ability to participate in society, right? Um, I think the issue when it comes to dirty words like assimilation is the fact that the people that advocate those sorts of policies aren't just about sort of, you know, addressing those practical constraints. A lot of the times they are about whitewashing minorities mm. and getting them to essentially, you know, leave behind their culture. And so there is this, I guess, again, like anything, that there's nuance, right? Like we want to make sure that we prepare different migrant groups so that they can participate actively in a society and that they can actually use that society and the tools there as a means of social mobility but equally not at the expense of them completely disregarding where they come from if that's something that is important to them and they want to hold on to.
1: Yeah absolutely and I think that's what the type of Australia that I would like to be, see be fostered so perhaps Because back in my parents' time, during the 80s, um, 70s, assimilation was actually a policy. So that's the reason why I've used that term in that very defined way, confined way. But I think we are a multicultural nation. I think that's the crux of it. And multicultural means we should all be able to embrace whatever versions of our culture that we choose to embrace. And it's not for other minorities and people within our own minority groups. Again, that lateral violence. It's not for them to police how we do it. Mm. That's my point. Mm. And this is the thing that frustrates me, I think, with my parents as well. Like, why are their friends policing the way that they are Vietnamese? You Mm. just are. And you've chosen the bits and pieces you want to embrace. I don't think culture should be this... Like oppressive on you and it shouldn't Mm. be like a straitjacket that this is the way to be the right indian or this is the way to be a right vietnamese it's more fluid than that and especially when you have migrated to another country and made the active choice to come to a western democracy that you know did is premised on multiculturalism and having to accept other people's cultures too you do need to open it up and embrace it a lot more because if we were going to be all hardline Um, Vietnamese, for instance, and were really into Buddhism at the exclusion of Christianity and other um, religions and stuff like that, how much conflict would that generate, you know?
0: Mm. Yeah, and again, it's that fine line, right? Because It's um, fine.
1: I appreciate that.
0: Yeah, you know, you don't want to sort of sit down and shut up and just kind of do what people in the majority in that country do. But equally, you can't be so far removed from it that you actually can't function in that society effectively. I think both you and I know lots of people within different migrant communities where the parents can't speak or write English, like you said, and often rely on their ch- like children to essentially... I think she, um, Hong,
1: talks about it, her. That's her experience.
0: And I feel like I, I have a few friends that fall into that category. Um, one friend in particular that I'm thinking about, and she loves her parents to bits, and she was happy to do that for her parents. that was a real burden on her as well. She was a child and going into the bank for her parents, going into the post office, um, calling, you know, different service providers about bills that needed to be paid as a child.
1: Well, that was my experience with my mum because her English isn't as strong as my dad's. And so, yeah, she used to get me to call the bank. and, Mm. And I feel bad now because like they were obviously the security things with banks, but Surely you could have seen it's a kid asking on behalf of their parent like it's not like they're going to rob their parent. But yeah, I remember being sort of like shamed out of that situation. And mm. then it just it is internalized shame because it's like why can't my parents speak like English to, like every other person. So it's that burden too. And when I was working in education um, there were lots of instances where um, parents would be called in for allegations made against another child, and they would have to get the other sibling to translate for them, and that's mm. too much. That's not a. Re- it's a burden that a child shouldn't have to have. Although it touches, and I know we're pressed for time, but it does touch on an interesting thing that Hong talked about, which is, like, the innocence of childhood and how only, like, the innocence of childhood is relegated to white kids and that, like, um, other minorities can't be innocent children. Mm -hmm. I thought that was so interesting.
0: Yeah, and I found it interesting how she discussed that in the context of, say, Asian-Americans who do sort of often adopt that parent-like role for their parents, Uh, but also in the context of African-Americans in a completely different way, though, right? Where essentially, and I think our common friend, Annika, mentioned this with a colleague of hers um, in the United Kingdom who happens to be black and who was telling her about essentially preparing her young children for interactions with police and how to conduct themselves.
1: So it's like, it's the opposite. So you've got this, um, you know, cherubic, um, I don't think I said that word right, you know, like a cherub, white, kid with curls is what I'm imagining Yeah, like angelic (laughs) and then on the other side you've got this devious like you know dark child who's street smart and knows how to you know rob banks at age 10 (laughs) Um, which is what in the book she says that um, the it was an old text that she drew on but she was saying that the moral of the story was once the white child like hugged the black child it made it innocent or something
0: Mm, oh my god So true, though. Innocence is the purview of privilege, right?
1: Absolutely. I was going to say that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, yeah, it makes me sad to think about that because I hope it's just our generation um, that has to... I don't think so,
0: though, because think about, I mean, I sometimes think back to my my ex a little bit, and I remember a lot of the time when I talk about these issues around culture, ethnicity and race... I would often be met with the response that he hadn't turned his mind to or thought about these issues. It kind of goes to that point about innocence because he hasn't had to because Mm. he is a white man. (laughs)
1: That's true. I mean, on one final point about the language thing is that the sad side effect of all of this is I actually think our languages will die in the next generation. So that's why you can't go too far on the... um,
0: See, I'm not as worried because there are like a billion plus Indians <laughs> floating about just th- in India. But I think that's why
1: I respect <laughs> Indian culture a lot because um, through these discussions, like I found that every Indian person that I met at university and Sri Lankan, they've all maintained names that are true to their um, their background mm. and their culture. Whereas Vietnamese, what I found really interesting when I went to university was that I was the only one who could speak Vietnamese. And my parents still spoke Vietnamese at home To me And that's because Mm. um, My parents are not educated Mm -hmm. In the same way as The people I went to university with Who's Um, So they're the
0: privileged Vietnamese. Yeah, Yeah. I
1: think so. And a lot of them firmly believed that the only way for their child to get ahead was if they spoke English at home. So they kind of went really far. And as a result, their kids have completely lost those communication skills. Mm. Whereas, like, because my background, I guess, is a bit, like, bogan, I guess, on the scheme of things, um, we still speak the language. And so Mm. I think it's still – it's a marker in in Vietnamese society – if you are an educated Vietnamese you're less you're like less likely to speak Vietnamese because you're so like educated that you only speak like French and English and if you're like bogan like me I guess um you still speak it
0: that's fascinating to me because that is literally the complete opposite of my experience like you touched on like the sort of middle to upper class indians that i met typically through university they were people that still actively participated in their communities in some way like they could often speak the language or practice the religion or participated in cultural events but because i did not grow up with privilege so i was kind of i guess from a bogan indian family in some ways i didn't learn any of that
1: that is so interesting (laughs) what do your parents speak between themselves mostly english See, that's my experience with the Vietnamese people I met at school, yeah. at university.
0: No, so, you know, they'll often, like, if there's a particular word that they can't find, sort of the equivalent for it in English, they'll revert to the Hindi. But by and large, my parents communicate with each other and with us in English. So I can't speak the language.
1: Uh, that is, like, <laughs> the complete opposite of what I'm saying. I yeah. guess well, it goes to show, really, that... Um,
0: there is so much nuance in this conversation, yeah.
1: right? And depending on who... What background you purport to come like represent and mm. identify with coming from? So, we're going to do something a little bit different this time um, in terms of what is something that you're grateful for? I think it's it's something that's really important we turn our minds to, especially in these testing times. Um, and you know it's a pretty bleak day today. <laughs> so, um Cushy, I'll turn to you. What is something
0: that you're grateful for? I was really hoping you were going to go first because I'm terrible at this, Um, but I'm just going to answer instinctively and I'm going to answer by focusing on the fact that we live so close to each other and we're in this beautiful park, notwithstanding the bleakness of the day, but we're in this beautiful park close to where we both live, coffees in hand and having conversations about things we care about. Absolutely agree. Um, I'll do mine, I guess a similar
1: theme, but I'm really grateful that my five kilometre radius is within everything that I need as well. Mm. Um, and I know for you, like your family is unfortunately, what is it? 42 Ks away? Uh, 45. And this is the thing, Mm. this pandemic has really, for me, honed in on, um, the importance of choosing where I live. Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful to rent. Like I hate all those freaking naysayers that are like, you should buy in Cranbourne. (laughs) No, Mm. I never will now because I'm, I'm near my friends. I'm near you. Um, and you know, our other mutual friends and stuff like that. And I'm near my family Mm. and I just can't even imagine, um, not having that circle around me mm. um during these times because it's been really dark it's been really bleak and I think if we didn't have our daily walks every day mm. and our like coffee store um I don't know how I would have made it through this has been a really long year I think um we've been too busy being numb or just chipping away at it but when you sit back and reflect on the shitstorm of this year in Melbourne in particular and mm. I like, don't want to sound whingy or anything like that but it's actually been really, really hard. I don't think anyone can understand how hard it's been to be in stage four lockdown for the last nine weeks. Mm. And on top of that, having locked down since March.
0: Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, the hardest part of all of this has been the fact that my family lives so far away. Uh, I mentioned to you that I've seen my mum once since February. And the fact that you
1: were like trying to find a middle point, because now they've extended <laughs> to 25 Ks and, um, because she was saying like um maybe we'll meet in the dfo car park
0: <laughs> but yeah. that breaks my heart like that's what we're reduced to now like yeah because we we tried to look up yeah sort of both of our respective um i guess border points that we could travel up to and because the weather is so shit tomorrow which is when i'm supposed to see them Um, we've kind of resolved that worst case scenario, we'll just meet in this car park and spend some time together. That is the grimmest thing. (laughs) I'm sure there is a gazebo somewhere in Essendon. I'm sure of it. No, I'm, I'm sure we'll be able to find something, but the fact that we're even having to sort of turn our minds to these things, like, oh. And I was so grateful when they did sort of expand the radius to 25Ks because initially they were talking about 20. And when it was 20, I realized that I still would not be able to see my parents. That's right. And I think
1: it's really made us grateful for the little um, luxuries that we used to take for granted. Mm, mm. Like, for instance, um, being able to go to the shops. Like, I know I've harped on about that a lot, but consumerism, man. And I (laughs) needed. But I, like, needed a keyboard or something and I was like, oh, I'm actually going to have to wait for this. Like, it has to be shipped from a warehouse, which could take up to a week. And then OzPost, obviously, has been inundated. I just don't know how I'm going to live if this year's Christmas is not the biggest thing ever. Like, I know a lot of people don't celebrate Christmas, but it's more – I'm not talking about the actual day itself, but I'm talking about the culmination of a very, very hard year – And it would just be incredible to see our families again Mm. and to see our friends, like our interstate friends. I really hope they can come home by December. Mm.
0: Yeah. Even today has been really strange because I grew up in like a, you know, AFL household and, you know, we would spend the Friday before the actual grand final game, you know, going to the parade. Um, and watching the players from the respective teams um, going down the streets whereas this year um, the grand final is not taking place in Melbourne we still all have the public holiday but we're not actually allowed to really do anything with it and it's like just this
1: extraordinary moment in history and they said they were gonna have like drones flying around people I don't know if that's actually happening
0: I did hear about that too, yeah, to make sure that people no are congregating having a party. at each other's and,
1: You know, I'm at the point now what where I'm like, if people are having a party, I don't even care that much <laughs> because we are so tired. Yeah. I do care if you have coronavirus and are spreading a, a thing via party. But if you're just literally, all of us have been disease-free for the last five months, mm. if you are mingling, mm. then I don't even have the energy to call the cops. Like, mm. I just don't <laughs> care because everyone's so desperate
0: And people don't
1: understand that desperation now. Like I've seen like videos of people in Sydney and Queensland and life is back to normal. They're not wearing masks. Yeah, no,
0: it it, honestly, whilst I love my friends living interstate, um, it kills me a little bit seeing them (laughs) living their best lives. And I think I might have mentioned this the last episode, but I had to make an active decision to mute a lot of my friends interstate because I found myself feeling just really bitter and resentful and jealous and I don't like feeling that way about my friends, but it's also unlike you. like it's very yes. symptomatic of
1: just the ongoing mm. drudgery that is these restrictions. Mm. And so I guess in closing, Probably one of the most grateful things that we have is really the fact that um, the numbers have gone down. Mm. We've gone from 700 to maybe one today or whatever it was. Mm. And that is a heroic effort on part of like everyone. And so really hoping that this is long-term gain for short-term pain. <laughs> to put Beth Judd's words in other ways. <laughs> but anyway, thank you so much for listening to yet uh, another episode of our podcast. Hopefully we'll be able to be bringing some more of these to you now that restrictions have sort of eased and that we can at least sit in the park and record and there may be some interesting noises around us um, that you can hear. But, um, yeah, so until next time.